Nebuchadnezzar was at home in his palace, contented and prosperous. He had a dream that made him afraid. As he was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through his mind terrified him. So, he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before him to interpret the dream. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, the king told them the dream, but they could not interpret it. Finally, Daniel came in to see Nebuchadnezzar. Though Daniel told the king the dream, the meaning of it, and the warning the dream provided, the king did not take it to heart. Twelve months later, King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? by my mighty power and for the glory of my name. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Welcome to Brave Week 4 here at the Foundry Church. We're so glad to have you here and joining us in worship as we look into the life of the prophet Daniel. We look at what it means to be brave. Here's a truth that will shock none of you. I love pie. Oh, it's so delicious. Like for my birthday this year, one of my buddies, he, he baked a strawberry rhubarb pie, pie and he brought it to me. Like, do guys bake each other pies? Apparently they do. And this thing was delicious. I had to like fight my kids off of it. I'm like, get away. It's my strawberry rhubarb pie. It was, oh, it was so good. And I love pie, right? I like, I like Chicken pot pie, I like cherry pie, oh, raspberry pie is my favorite, I'll eat some coconut cream pie, like I like pie, but there is one kind of pie, it's not really my favorite. Humble pie is hard to get down. Have you ever heard that term before, humble pie? Um, I know this, that there was a time in my life where um, I had been on a long series of what you would say is wins. I had been doing really well for a number of years in my profession as a youth pastor, and I, I was slaying it. I thought I was great, but my pride had gotten the best of me, and um, I was a legend in my own mind, which is never good, and eventually my pride became outweighed the benefit of my presence in the role I served in. And I got called on the carpet by some friends, some colleagues, and a community, and it was painful. And I had a steady diet of humble pie that lasted, I would say it was about 
right around, I would say, 15 months of humble pie, where humble pie was my meal and my tears were my beverage. It was brutal, but it was because of my pride, and I had to eat humble pie. I had to look at myself as I was and not try to say, well, I'll change this and do this. I just had to recognize who I was, repent of it, and ask God to restore what had been lost and fix what was broken because my pride had gotten out of control. I don't know if you've ever eaten humble pie in that quantity, but I will tell you this, it's not something I would encourage. Today when we talk about Daniel, we're gonna talk about brave advice. We're gonna talk about brave advice. You see, Daniel was the favored wise man to King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel would have to give some brave advice. This was the king's dream, quickly in summary. The king dreamt that there was, he saw in the, his, his dream, this tree that was great and expansive. It was this massive tree, and it gave shelter to all the beasts of the field, and it um, gave nests to the birds of the air. It, its fruit fed all the people around the world, and it was this beautiful tree. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sees a messenger, an angel coming from heaven in this dream, and it's saying, cut it down, cut down this tree and put a ring of iron around its stump and bronze over it. Its roots remain in the ground, but it's, it's iron casted the top of it. And for seven times, keep it there. And it's this terrible, terrible dream. And the king is shaken and terrified by it. And he goes and he goes and finds the prophet Daniel. He goes and finds Daniel and he says to him, no one can interpret this dream. Can you give me some insight on what's going on and how this is playing out? So Daniel interprets the dream. And he was nervous to interpret the dream. And he was nervous to tell the king the truth. Daniel saw life through God's lens. So he was brave. He was brave because he saw life through God's lens. Even when he had a difficult message to deliver, he could do it because he was brave because he was speaking on God's behalf, not his own. Daniel's lens on life was God's. And Daniel was faithful to that mission in his life, to be a faithful messenger of what God told him to speak, and Daniel would give brave advice. Here's the advice Daniel gave to King Nebuchadnezzar regarding his dream. We're gonna read Daniel chapter four, verse 24 through 37, and as we read through it, I want you to hear and imagine what it would be like for the king to hear these words. It said this, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. Did you hear that? It's against the king. So Daniel is giving a word against King Nebuchadnezzar on behalf of God. We can see why he had to be brave. He said this, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by before for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone that he wishes. The command 
to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Verse 27, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. So here's the thing. Daniel goes from interpreting the dream to offering advice to the king. He says, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to the king Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for my glory and my majesty? Even as the words were on the king's lips, a voice came from heaven and it said, this is what is decreed for you. King Nebuchadnezzar, your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the oxen. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, and he ate grass like the oxen. He, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble Oh, like that is, that is like a word right there. And how do you take a story like that and what lens do we put on it to understand all that's going on? I believe if we take the lens of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is a book, it follows the book of Psalms right in the middle of your, um, of your Bible in the Old Testament, Proverbs is a, is a group of timeless truths, a group of sayings of timeless truths and wisdom, primarily written by King Solomon hundreds of years before um, this exile. Hundreds of years, written by King Solomon and uh, some other uh, leaders, David wrote a few, but primarily King Solomon wrote these Proverbs, and they are truths that have stood the test of time, and we are going to look at this story through the lens of some of the Proverbs written in that. If you ever want a good um, 
a good little extra Bible reading for your devotions. Like we have our devotions, I encourage you make sure you're picking those up and staying in them. But if you ever want a little extra Bible reading, you can read a proverb every day and you will get through the book of Proverbs in a 31-day month one time. So you can go through it a number of times a year, and it's really good, and those words sink into your life. I would encourage you to do that. But we're going to look at Daniel 4 through the lens of the book of Proverbs, and we're going to look first at Proverbs 15, 31. It says this, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise, which means whoever listens to life-giving correction will have a home with people who are wise, and wisdom says you listen to that correction. I don't know about you, but I'm sure there's been a number of moments in your life where you're like, oh, I wish I had listened to that advice. You have that moment in your life where you're like, oh, I wish I could look back and do things differently. One of the funny little ways um, to apply this for me is uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a young dad, not saying I'm an old dad, I'm more middle-aged, but um, when I was a young dad, Bella was a little baby, and I would come home from work, and Josh, a little sausage of a human, would come hug me. He's like, Dad, you know, so excited. And then Bella would be off in a corner, lurking somewhere, staring at me with great doubt in her eyes. And I wasn't her favorite person. And I know you're like, what? How can that be? I don't know. But I wasn't. Her mom was her favorite. Then her grandma. And and I quit counting after that because I was scared that I was still on the second hand on the list of people who was her favorite. She just, I, it was just kind of, it was cute, it's cute now, but back then I'd be like, hey Bella, and she'd be like, ah, you know, just kind of terrified of me. But one thing I could do is make her laugh. And every day when I would come home, I would spend some time with her making her giggle and laugh. And more often than not, um, Erica would say, you guys have been giggling and laughing for a while. She might be getting tired, which was a warning that she was going to implode emotionally. She was just a little baby, right? I mean, when I say she was lurking in a corner, she probably wasn't. She was like in a swing or a baby bounce. She was still very small. And, um, and so I would be playing with her, and Eric would be like, you've been playing for a while, and I, I will never forget what it was like when I would go too far, and she would just, her eyes would fill with a river of tears, and her little lip would stick out, and then boom, she would just start weeping, and Erica would pick her up and say, it's okay, honey, and carry her away, and over her shoulder, she's looking at me like, you better leave me alone and quit tickling me. Like, that's just, it was kind of a, <laughs> an interesting way of, I wish I had listened to Erica so many times. I went through that, and uh, Bella and I still make each other laugh all the time. She's hysterical, but I will tell you this, that is one of those I wish I had listened moments that I had a number of times, because life-giving correction is critical, and it can be, hey, maybe you've been going at that too long, or be careful, or you know, just life-giving correction, helping you change your course away from destruction towards life. Life-giving correction is something that is biblical, and it's important for us to listen to. So what is life-giving correction? James, in the book of James, in the New Testament, um, it says this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sin. Life-giving correction steers us away from a life apart from Christ, apart from God. 
Anything that steers us away from God needs to be corrected. Our course needs to always be set to walking in unity with him. So anything that breaks relationship, uh, anything that invites you to correct that and get back in relationship with God is life-giving correction. And we need to do this. And in the life of Daniel, we see Daniel give life-giving correction to King Nebuchadnezzar. And I love this about Daniel. Think about his role. Daniel is, um, he's owned by the king. He was taken from Jerusalem as a captive. He is owned by the king. And yet Daniel gives life-giving correction from what God said. Not what Daniel says, from what God said. And he offered sorrow for having to confront the issue going on inside of his king. He declared his affection for King Nebuchadnezzar in his response to him. He even offered his own remedy, and you heard me read it a minute ago. But here's the interesting thing. When Daniel, when Daniel sees the vision, that here's the vision, and God gives him the interpretation, he's terrified. He knows that as a captive, the king could be like, who are you, Daniel, to tell me this is going to happen? Flick and like take his head off. But Daniel loved him enough to speak life-giving correction into his life and to say, King, and this is Daniel's response, O king, live forever. I wish that my interpretation was for your enemies or one of your adversaries, but this is the word of God for you. He gives him life-giving correction. And it goes on to say this, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sin by doing what is right. Doing what is right. And your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Life-giving correction does a couple of things. First of all, it supports Scripture and it speaks the truth in love. Life-giving correction supports Scripture, speaks the truth in love. The messenger won't be perfect. And if you're looking for a perfect messenger to deliver life-giving correction, you will always wiggle out of it because there are no perfect messengers. There's a lot of reasons why, even for me as a pastor, I'm a broken, fallen man who has my own issues. I understand that I'm a broken messenger at times. And you can say, well, they're a broken messenger. I don't need to listen to them. The king could have said, I don't need to listen to Daniel. I own him, right? He could just say that to him. They could say, you know, well, maybe they have this sin in their life or maybe they're this kind of person. Um, They just, they can say, you know, I don't need to listen based on who the messenger is. Be very careful of this. Be very careful and maybe do this. I want you to write these next three things down today. Write these three things down so that um, you can ask yourself these questions. First of all, does the person offering me life-giving correction, do they care about me? Do they care about me? It's, obviously, it's obvious Daniel cared for King Nebuchadnezzar. But if we don't listen when God sends someone who cares about us, we will hear loud and clear when God sends a messenger who doesn't care about us later on. Second thing to write down is what they are saying supported by Scripture. Look at Daniel's advice here. He says to him, renounce your sin, repent from sin, and do what is right, to be made right, to be righteous, to live in accordance with what God says, and to stop the wicked behavior 
of being mean to the oppressed. Think of how many times in the Old Testament God speaks to the Israelites that when they take over the land, they are to be kind to the alien living in their gates, to the widow, to the orphan, and to the oppressed. They are to ensure that they are able to survive, that they are able to live a life because their life is created in the image of God too and they matter. God speaks to that and Daniel's words to the king are supported by scripture. Make sure you ask that question, is what was given to me as life-giving correction, is it supported by scripture? And finally, write down this, is what, the, if, is what this person said to me, is it echoing something God has already been convicting me of? Are they saying something to you that you already know, deep in your spirit, has been wrong and out of line? Or did it convict you a few months ago and maybe you forgot about it and just kind of moved on? Are they speaking something that echoes into your spirit? Those three things will help you discern life-giving correction. Proverbs 15, 32 says this. Um, It says, those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. The one who heeds correction gains understanding. Be careful about disregarding discipline. Be cautious about disregarding discipline. Daniel told the king the interpretation. He offered his own sage advice to the king's life. And the king clearly did not. We can tell by looking at the king's behavior a year later, he did not take it to heart because the king stood on his palace and said, check it out. How great am I? Look at what I've built for my majesty. Exactly, it says this. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Those are King Nebuchadnezzar's words. He obviously disregarded the discipline and the life-giving correction of God in the voice of Daniel in his life, and something terrible followed it. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had great reason to boast. Before Babylon's rise, they were a city-state of great influence, but they were always under the thumb of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire ruled for about 700 years in this area of the world. They had an iron grip on it, and the kingdom that unseated them and took over the Assyrian Empire when, when it collapsed and they pounced on them was Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had defeated the great 7th century old Assyrian Empire. He was a great and powerful king. He knew his place and he had clearly thought himself great, but he clearly disregarded Daniel's words because him saying, this is by my power and for my majesty. Daniel's words had fallen on deaf ears in his life a year earlier and we find ourselves recognizing what happens when we disregard discipline. When we disregard discipline, there are three things we do, I believe, that are inherent and um, kind of within us. They are as natural as breathing for us. They are basic reactions that we have uh, to what it looks like when we disregard discipline as Nebuchadnezzar did. First thing is this. We justify our sin. I justify my sin and so do you, so let's not pick any bones on it. Let's just admit that's what we do. Let's say it this way. Let's pretend... You told your middle school son this week, okay, you cannot go to your friend's house when their parents aren't home because I don't want you guys just getting into trouble over there. So if their parents aren't home, you can't be there. But your house doesn't have air conditioning. 
and Michigan is the face of the sun this week, right? Super hot. So you're, you're, it's super hot at home, and your, your son's little buddy has air conditioning, and he goes to his house, and his parents aren't home, but it's 72 degrees. Feels like a meat locker in his house. And your son's like, well, my mom wouldn't want me to be so hot at home. I mean, she knows how much I enjoy the cool air. So um, I just for my own safety, I'm going to stay at my friend's house. Even though his parents aren't home, I'm doing this because I think it's probably best. You justify a broken decision. Uh, you justify a decision that is broken because you know what is right, but you're choosing not to obey. We justify things that God doesn't justify. We, we, we kind of equate things that are unequal. So we've got to be very cautious of justifying the disregarding of godly discipline. The next thing we do is we blame. Oh man, this is so brutal. And I'm going to use marriage for this because it happens a lot in marriage. I know that um, for, for a married couple, you can blame each other for things that you do, right? So I'm going to use an example, and I don't know if this applies to you. I just think it's really good. But let's just say a woman, a wife, has um, a series of very emotional relationships with some guys outside of her marriage, some friends, some close, connected relationships. And her husband's like, hey, what is going on here? And she could say back to him and blame him, well, if you didn't leave me alone and go fishing all the time, or golf all the time, or sit on your phone all the time, or watch football all the time, or hang out with your buddies all the time, I wouldn't need them. When we blame other people, it's very dangerous. Husbands, you're not off the hook here though, right? We, we can do this too, where um, maybe, maybe you feel like, you know, I'm justified in looking at certain things because, well, you know, if my wife was just, you know, a little more interested in me physically, I, I wouldn't struggle like this. So it, it's, it's really her fault. And she says, what are you doing? She sees you looking at it and you're like, well, it's not my fault. If you liked me more, I wouldn't struggle. Do you see how blaming disregards discipline? It disregards discipline. Don't justify. Don't blame. And finally, don't shoot the messenger. Again, Daniel, a captive to the king, had to come and deliver a message that was above his pay grade. He had to say something to the king that was dangerous, but he said it anyway because it's important that the king heard it. And the king could have shot the messenger, quite literally, but he didn't. But here's how I see us doing this in a context. And again, I have limited time, so I'm just giving quick examples. But think of it like this. You go to school, you sit down, and you have parent-teacher conferences, and you're sitting there, and the teacher says, I have some behavior issues with your son or daughter. And you're like, that can't be because they're perfect and you're a bad teacher. And all around the church, teachers just went, amen, because it's so hard when the messenger gets shot, when they're being brave to tell a true thing, when they're saying, look, if you want the best for your child, you need to correct these behaviors. And quite often, parents shoot the messenger at those parent-teacher conference tables and say, my son would never do that. They would never do it while you're looking. They might be speaking truth into you. Don't disregard discipline. Those are a few quick ways we can lean into that. Proverbs 15, 33 says, wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord and humility comes before honor. Daniel was able to deliver a word of God into the life of King Nebuchadnezzar 
because he feared the Lord. And it was a brave word and it could have cost Daniel his life, but he did it anyway. He did it anyway. The king did not receive or wasn't able to hear the word of the Lord because the king thought he was God. Remember last week, Matt was talking about Nebo, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo, the God. He thought he was a God. He was a God to himself, so he was unable to hear the message because King Nebuchadnezzar had yet to fear the Lord. But based on the story, he came to a different understanding of it. Proverbs Uh, 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride in Hebrew has really two possible meanings. It means this. The first is majesty or excellence in a nation or a building. Not a bad thing, right? Not a bad thing. It is good to be proud of of certain things and certain accomplishments and just looking and being like, yeah, I will say this. I am a proud American. I love my country for all its wrinkles and mistakes and different things. I still love America and I'm proud to be a citizen of this country. I find it one of the honors of my life that I have that opportunity and I intend on making the most of it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your heritage. I'm proud that I've lived on the west coast of California and Colorado. I'm proud that I'm a Michigander. What up, Mitten? I love it. Would it be like this? Yeah, like that. But I love it here, right? I'm proud of that. I think it's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But the second meaning behind pride in Hebrew, quite literally, it's bad sense, It makes no sense. It refers to having a bad sense, like acting like a beast. It's just bad sense. Have you ever known somebody who if you say something, they just, I am like this. It's called the reptilian brain, right? You you have this, this part of your brain, and we call it fight or flight right? And you either run or you really engage and you fight. Here's the thing. That's your reptilian brain. It's not the logical frontal area. It's your reptilian brain. And pride can cause us to whoosh, go into that big reptilian reaction that says, I would never do that, right? We get really mad and we get really emphatic and we get really loud and we stop making sense and we're really driving some narrative that gets us out of trouble because we're fighting for our life, even though it may not be in danger. Pride says, I'm not going to listen to you because there's nothing wrong with me. And that is a real problem. It's bad sense, haughtiness, arrogance, self-superiority over people who are just like you, made in the image of God. Yes, they're called to live in different roles maybe, and we may have structures in this world that, that elevate certain roles, but I will tell you this, not one person is more valuable based on any criteria over another person because we're all made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God. And to arrogantly be superior or disdainful of other human beings is wrong and it's sin and it's arrogant pride. It's bad sense. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was warned privately by Daniel, don't don't do this. And then he publicly was revealed to be a selfish beast as he went about the kingdom for seven seasons. We don't know, or seven times. We don't know exactly how long that is. We just know this, that the fall of King Nebuchadnezzar is documented over thousands of years of scripture, and it's documented even in the British Museum in London. There are tablets of of Nebuchadnezzar's fall and things of his fall that are, it's amazing, 
It's amazing what's in there. It talks of how he does not exist anymore. He's there, but he doesn't exist. He doesn't care or raise up his son to lead the kingdom. He doesn't even care about Babylon anymore, this great kingdom he built. He disregards it, and it it talks about a time when he has his hands raised in repentance, calling out to the great gods, asking for forgiveness for what he's done. Here's the thing. If you read the devotions this past week, and again, church, be in the word of God all week long. If you read devotions, you heard of... um, that term boethropy, which is, uh, it's bovine, and it's actual mental disorder where people go and live like camels, or, or like camels, like donkeys, like goats, like, uh, like cows, like they go live like cattle. And it's an actual disorder. It happens to this very day. And here's the thing that, that's amazing about it. When you look at King Nebuchadnezzar, he literally, his brain short-circuited. And he went to a place that he would have never thought possible. He went to a place that was just crazy for him. I saw a meme the other day on Facebook, and it cracked me up. I don't know who said it. Uh, Sorry, I can't give you credit if you're watching this. But um, it said this, I don't want to adult anymore. I actually don't even want to be a human. I want a goat. I want to eat all day and headbutt people who I don't like. I was like, oh, that's awesome. You're like, right, that's what we're talking about right here. It's right here. This idea that he just locked into a different place, and he became like a cow. How bad did you look when you went to the hairdresser after three and a half months of quarantine? Imagine this dude. Let's just say he was, he was like this for a year. It says his nails were like claws. His hair was like eagle feathers. The dude looked crazy. He ate the grass. Like, I wonder if he ever headbutted somebody. Hey, watch out for that crazy goat King Nebuchadnezzar and run off. Like, it would have been crazy to imagine. But that's what happened. His pride revealed the beastly nature, bad sense going on within him. It is bad sense to put ourselves and elevate ourselves to the place of God. And it tells us this, that pride is beastly. Pride is beastly. And it's our lowest, most base, selfish state. It's bad sense. It's beastly. It's the lowest of human ways. And humility is actually brave. Humility is intentional. Effort to obey God and please him only. To obey God and please him only. Daniel saw life through God's lens. So he obeyed God. He could be brave and deliver even bad news to his owner king. The king saw life through his own eyes, a God unto himself. And even when he was corrected, he refused to take heart and listen to what God was saying to him. Sometimes, I think we as people, we as the church, as individuals, are frightened to look closely. We hold strongly to our pride and we worry that maybe in some ways listening to anything that calls us into question will unseat us when the opposite is true. Holding to our pride will ruin us, but holding on to God and being humble, knowing our place in this life, knowing God and making him known, being our one and only goal is the thing that makes us truly wonderful and great in this life. God is gentle, friends. He will rebuke you and correct you quietly in your own spirit. He does it with me all the time. I have something right now that God's just dealing with in me. And it's something he's dealt with before. 
and he just won't tolerate it. And I listen to it, and I repent of it, and I work hard to follow him and be brave. And I know you have that too. He rebukes us and corrects us in our heart first. Then he sends a Daniel, a messenger. For some of you today, I'm your Daniel. I'm speaking a word to you saying, listen to the correction of God, whatever it may be, and obey it because church, he will send a Daniel who speak a gentle, loving word. And if we don't listen, he will give us over to our own base instinct and you will become more beastly and horrible than you could have ever imagined. You don't see the end from the beginning like God does. God knows what our pride becomes. It ends in death. So God's calling you. He's calling me. He's calling us to be brave. And when correction comes, to listen and obey. Lord Jesus Christ, help us, your church, be faithful with the work we have to do in serving you and devoting our life to you in humility. May all that we do seek to serve you, our Lord, our Savior. Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's a reality that comes with pride that um, it's one of our most natural instincts to kind of self-aggrandize and think so highly of ourselves. But if you think about it, and you think about the people in your life you've known who are so proud and arrogant, you just, you just want away from them. But then if you think, on the other hand, of people who are humble, People who understood humility. It's not that they were nobodies. It's that they just didn't need everybody to know that they were somebody. And they served and they cared for people and they do things that is quite beautiful because they're not the center of the universe. Pride is the great deception that says, I'm first, after me, you're first. Humility is knowing our place in God's economy, knowing our place in his economy, which is this, you are called to serve. You are called to take care of people that will cause you discomfort. You are called not to be all about you, but to live for him. Because pride is the worst of us. And humility is one of those signs in someone's life. When I meet someone who is humble, the one thing I know about them is they are a spirit-filled Christian who is willing to do anything for the cause of Christ. May that be said of you. May that be said of me and all of us as we go into the lives we lead this week, that we are people who are truly humble. And we wear our humility like a garment, knowing that, yeah, at times we're going to serve, but our service is always in service to Jesus. It's always focused on bringing those who are far from him home. Friends, I invite you. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. Think highly of the one who called you. Know that he loves you, and in that, it is enough. It is enough. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we look forward to seeing you again. Grace and peace.